This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we've got Chris Marshall on the show. Chris is the founder and owner of Sands Bar. Sands Bar started as an alcohol-free pop-up event in Austin, Texas, but has now turned into not only a national community, but a touring alcohol-free experience happening in cities all over the country. We're very excited to have Chris on the show and discuss his incredibly fast-growing alcohol-free movement. Let's go to Chris. Chris Marshall, welcome to Champagne Problems. Hey, thanks for having me on. Glad to be here. We're excited to have you on. We're excited to dig into everything you're doing. If you wouldn't mind giving our listeners just a little bio, not not necessarily a current one, but more kind of, you know, who you are, where you're from, where you went to school, you know, how you grew up, some of that stuff. I uh, grew up in Texas my whole life. I've lived in Texas, you know, from from birth to today um, and started my life, early life in Houston, Texas. Grew up there and uh, definitely lived in the Houston proper, but then we moved to the suburbs. And when I moved to the suburbs of Houston, uh, in a place called Sugarland, Texas, I definitely felt like I was an outsider. I definitely did not feel like I belonged in um, the neighborhood that I was living in. Uh, we were kind of like middle middle class, and we had like upper middle class to lower upper class, I guess you would say. So I definitely felt like yeah. I didn't yeah. belong. I didn't fit in. That's really kind of where things started for me. It was just a lifetime of not really feeling like I fit in or I belonged anywhere. So connection has always been a big deal for me. I always wanted to connect with people and connect with those who I thought were like the cool kids. I uh, just never felt like one of the cool kids. And that was just, it was just, uh, that story would just repeat itself from, from high school. I'm sorry, from, from middle school to high school. And then when I was 16 years old, I fell into a group of, of guy friends and they were all about the alcohol and having a good time. And, and I hadn't experienced that. So that was something that was definitely new for me. And I, and I had to think about uh, kind of my own upbringing and my own family, my family. Um, my mom was a single parent. She raised me and my, my little sister. Uh, grew up in a very spiritual home, went to church, um, did not see any alcohol use in my home. So uh, it was not something that I was even accustomed to. So I had to make a choice very early on to see like, okay, do I follow my friends and become part of this social group, which I'm so, uh, so desperately wanting to be a part of, or do I do kind of the thing that I was taught to do and behave the way I was raised to behave? And I, I chose to hang out with those friends and um, it started me on this incredible journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, that is interesting to be sensitive on this. Are you are you referring somewhat to race? It, it was that kind of how you didn't fit in. Oh, absolutely. In the I mean, or I mean, that was one of many dimensions. Yeah. Like I said, yeah. just economically, there was a difference. You know, my friends, their first car was you know sure. Mercedes Benz or you know the the new Mustang. I got a Toyota Camry, and that was I mean, and I'm not knocking a Toyota Camry, but it was just <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> It was very indicative of the difference in our experiences, right? Um, most kids, some kids don't get a car at all. So I just want to acknowledge, like, they're, they're still, I'm middle, middle class, right? <laughs> right. Um, but then there also was that racial component where I was the oftentimes the only black kid in class. I was uh, one of a handful of students in class. It was always um, a source of division because I would I would see my friends and they would say we're all the same but then when we would get into trouble I was treated differently or I had my friend's parents tell me like oh you're one of the good ones um, I experienced a lot of that growing wow. up so it just made it it made it challenging to experience wow so what happened as you were going through high school in terms of the alcohol so yeah I I just kept um <laughs> I kept on trying to fit in with this group of friends. I kept trying to belong to them. I kept trying to be a part of something, anything. Um, I developed this really interesting dichotomy where on one hand, I was really active in like school programs and I was I was not the best academically, but like 
with social programs and um, I was, you know, I did some leadership programs. There was that, there was that version of Chris. Then there was this other version of Chris that was deeply lonely, that was depressed, I think really, and looking for connection. And those two versions of myself were at war constantly. Um, I became the editor of the newspaper in high school, which was a big deal for me because my dream job was to be a journalist. And I, I just had this vision of being a you know journalist somewhere uh, on assignment. That was my my fantasy as a kid. And those those two parts of myself were always at war because the good kid, the kid that everyone knew and respected, didn't drink alcohol. But then this other version of me did, right? And so I was 16 when I had my first drink. I'll never forget it. Never forget the experience. It was a hot Texas day, uh, summer, <laughs> and uh, someone had some. Uh, some beer in their, their the back of their trunk. They some someone had bought it for us. We were underage. Someone bought it for us. They had, it had been sitting in the back of someone's trunk in the middle of Texas summer. <laughs> so you know it was hot. Oh man, it was boiling. Yeah, I remember it was like boiling. I thought you know all beer just hissed like that. Um, and oh. it was this experience. We were out in a soccer field and we all opened our beers and they had like I said drank before. I had not. And when I drank, that first sip was disgusting to me. Mm -hmm. But immediately behind that was this like, yeah, like we, <laughs> like we did this. Like we, we have crossed the threshold, you know, like I've, I am now initiated into like boyhood and like what it means to be uh, a part of a group of friends. Yeah. And I, I've kept up with some of those guys. They have no memory of that day. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. It was just another Saturday between, you know, junior, or I guess that'd be sophomore and junior year. But for me, it was this moment where I felt like I belonged, like I was a part of it. And in that way, alcohol was a great equalizer in my life. Like I felt like no matter what the differences were, everyone got drunk. Yeah. Like everyone was impaired. Everyone, if you drank too much of the stuff, you'd pass out. Like it, it felt like this thing that made me feel not only connected to, but almost equal to the people that um, I had tried so hard to be a part of in my life. Yeah. Wow. Was it Natty Light? <laughs> no, actually, you know what? I'm not ashamed to say like it was, uh, it was, it was Shiner. It was a Shiner box. Shiner box. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mine was, was still Shiner box. Hot Shiner box. Uh, it was a hot shiner box and it was like the most Texan thing you could do, right? Like I uh I look back now and I'm not mad at that that situation, but I but I I recognize like in that moment there was just so much going on for me and it wasn't that wasn't happening for my friends. Like they just were not consciously aware that I was having this almost spiritual experience uh because it was a thing that I had always wanted my whole life. Mm -hmm. Man, you described that so well. That uh I can feel that. I can absolutely feel it. So expand. So go forward. Because I, I, I don't know your story, man. We, you know, does this evolve and, and get rough and get bad? Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear it. Let's hear I, it. I don't, know, I don't know if you've seen this movie before, but uh, <laughs> we, yeah. yeah we, you know, we've lived it. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, like it's as he's like, I don't know if I need to issue a spoiler warning, but I think you know how this story goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Second time I drank, I flipped my mother's car, oh, just just trying so hard to fit in. Uh, I threw a party uh, at my house. My mom went out of town to Dallas, and I decided I was going to throw a party. And I was just doing doing my party thing, right? You're host. You're 16 years old. You're hosting a party. You have all these people coming over to your house. It's getting out of hand. The whole school's there. Oh. I'm so excited because I think this is what I want, right? Yeah. I think. Oh my gosh, finally, they've all descended on my, you know, my, my little, my little cul-de-sac, you know, um, <laughs> cars lined up down the street. I am just like, the part of me that was perpetually lonely was like this, I have arrived. Made it. Um, but then quickly, uh, like these like seniors descended on, on my party and just consumed the alcohol like locusts. Like they were just like in and out and they drank all the alcohol. I think they took a lot of it with them. Right. Yeah. And I realized I had no more alcohol and people were leaving my party and I just couldn't handle that. I could not, I could not stand it. So I was drunk 
Um, again, the second time I ever drank, drunk, decided to get into my mother's car to go get more alcohol. Um, don't know where I was really headed, honestly. Yeah. Um, and flipped my mother's car oh, over. Um, Holy cow. Lucky to be alive. Uh, stopped just short of hitting two kids in their in their bedroom. Um, it, you know, just went through someone's backyard and and came very close to having a vastly different story. Wow. Um, and that was a huge moment in my life because, again, those two versions of myself, right? The good kid and then this kid who was lonely and wanting to connect collided. And I couldn't hide it anymore. I was, I was, everyone saw me as the same person, which was this person who, who did a bad thing, right? And, and that's all people could see. Um, all the things I had done previously in school. And I mean, I was a decent writer. I wrote a poem like, and got some money for my school. Like I, I did, I did some things that were cool, you know, but, um, all that was erased. The second people realized like, Oh, this, this kid's a drunk. And he, uh, he almost killed somebody like it, this, this, this kid has a problem. I lived with that throughout high school. I drank throughout high school. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time in high school because I stopped drinking at 23. So, okay. <laughs> so, so it's not like, I just want you to like, yeah. if you're listening, you're like, man, he's spending a lot of time. Well, that's <laughs> we got, we got a the majority of my drinking, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. People are like, are you going to talk about your twenties and thirties? I'm like, not really. Yeah. Um, cause I, I, I was, I was done by 23. So Got to college, same cycle, same cycle, right? Like joined a fraternity, looking for belonging, looking for connection, looking to be a part of something and anything. And here there was a group of guys saying like, if you want to join us, you can. And we are hanging out every single day. And you can party with us every single day. And if you want to drink a 16 or 18 pack of beer, you can Absolutely. I'm you, in. You, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. sign and me I was up. Like, sign okay. me up and I will pay you. I'm going to pay you to be a part of this. Like it is, it is fantastic. So I was uh, so excited about being in a fraternity and through my like freshman and sophomore year of college, even my fraternity brothers were like, you are drinking for a different reason than we are. Like you are, we are drinking to party and have a good time. You are drinking for something else. Like it is not the same. Like we you're are on not a mission. drinking in this. Yeah. Wow. Like, um, I remember one of my friends, I mean, again, to think about being 19, 20 years old, to be, to be that perceptive blows my mind. My friend said to me, like, you're drinking at something, Chris. Huh? Wow. I, I'll never, I was drunk as a skunk, but I remember that just like that very clear, you're drinking at something. Mm. And I was, I was drinking at loneliness. I was drinking at feeling different than everyone else. I was drinking at never belonging. I was drinking at this depression that I, I was, I was having. And then this social anxiety that I was starting to have because I was increasingly dependent upon alcohol to, to, to belong in a social situation. I yeah. could not go out I couldn't go to a, a basketball game. We didn't have a football game, a football team when I was in college. So I couldn't go to a basketball game. Uh, couldn't couldn't do anything like that without having a drink. I needed to drink. Um, I stopped going to class. I, you know, all the things, all the things, you know, started sliding downhill. So uh, went to treatment for the first time at 22 and quickly signed myself out because I didn't belong. Huh. How did right? that get initiated? Like, was that like your yeah. parents? Was that friends? Like, how did that get initiated for you to go to treatment for the first time? Me, actually. Um, like, I, I I, recognized that I had, you know, those like moments of clarity? <laughs> like, yeah. like you're just sitting in a, in a bed. Yeah, yeah. This, this, this I was in a bed room full well. of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was sitting in a room full of beer cans and uh, depression and darkness. And I was like, think this is normal i just <laughs> mm, this feels something funny. about this this is not i don't know i don't know what gave it away but something just does not feel good about this um and so i literally uh i think i i expressed some uh, you know cry for help my mom like re, you know said like okay let's see what we can do and 
after that window, that moment of clarity closed, and I was resistant, right? Like I was like, ah, you know, I was just yeah. saying it. I, yeah, a little I, overreaction. I was too sober. It was a bad day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like sorry. Yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I'm so sorry. But my mom's like, no, just go and try. I had insurance. I was still on her insurance. So I went. I literally went to treatment and immediately signed myself out. I just, I saw everyone else uh, just sick. Um, although I did have a seizure while I was detoxing oh, for the nice. first time. Mm-hmm. But I was like, ah. This just isn't me. Um, You're like, everyone here is withdrawing. Like, this is, well, yeah, I don't like, know what's happening with them. <laughs> I just had a seizure. I yeah. don't know what that's about. It had, you know, nothing, like, it had nothing to do with alcohol, I promise. Yeah, this yeah, wouldn't be yeah, happening yeah. if I was allowed to keep drinking. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know, like, that. that's the reality is, like, I was looking for all the ways I was different from everyone else, right? The whole The thing I'd done my whole life was to want to be like everyone else. And in treatment, I'm looking at all the differences. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. what? Like, I want to be part of the group, but not this group. Not this one. Yeah. Not, this isn't the group I wanted. I, again, <laughs> cool kids. Yeah. Cool kids, not kids on, you know, um, detox meds. Um, yeah. So I checked myself out of treatment, and the uh, counsel that I had at the time said, you were not going to make it past 30 days, kid. You're going to drink in 30 days or less. And I said, you know what? <laughs> Just to spite you, I'm going to stay sober. 31 so, days. <laughs> I called him on day 30, and I was like, you know what? I'm still sober. I called him on day 60, like, hmm, guess what? Still sober. <laughs> called him on day 90, like, I'm sober. Because uh, I was miserable. I was. I literally was doing this just to spite one human being yeah. on a planet of billions of people I wasn't even staying sober for myself. I was doing it to prove this person wrong. Yeah. And I was miserable. I, I absolutely hated it. And the questions that kept going through my young 22-year-old mind were like, how am I going to live without alcohol? How am I going to socialize without alcohol? I'm on MySpace. I'm seeing my my date myself. Yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm on, we'll I'm on MySpace. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm seeing my friends do all these cool things. Um, have all these fun adventures and I'm here. I'm miserable. I want to drink every single day. This is not the life that I want for myself. And so I gave it a lot of thought, but I decided to return to drinking. And that's the most important decision I could have ever made in my life because it was the first time I realized like I had this thing, like I really did have a problem. Like, because what I what I wanted to do was to go return to drinking and have a few beers, maybe go meet my friends and play some golf or, you know, go do some, you know, go to the beach, go to Galveston, have a couple drinks. That was my, that was my want, you know, I was now legal to drink. I wanted to go to a, I had never been to a, uh, like a bar with friends to watch football like i've never done that and i'm like okay i'm gonna go back to drinking i'm gonna be able to do those things like everyone else and i'm gonna be fine and the truth is, is that none of that happened the second i drank um that just desire to drink more was just 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 like a a forest fire like it was just insatiable like i had this insatiable um desire for more and and what sucked more was that I had known sobriety. I knew what it was like, or, or abstinence rather. Like I knew what it was to not drink. And I knew that even though I hated the way I felt not drinking, I liked the way my brain worked when I was not drinking. Yeah. And that's what, that's what was the torture mm-hmm. because my brain wasn't working the same way. I wasn't being creative. I wasn't writing. I wasn't, I wasn't being a good brother. I wasn't being a good son. I was lying again. Um, things just, things just, you know, weren't, weren't the same. And, and I just knew that like, this was not sustainable. So I, I got to a point where I didn't want to, want to, want to stop drinking after I returned to drinking and I couldn't, and things just got really bad. I went to the hospital, you know, the, the ER doctor told my mom, like, you need to get prepared, start making funeral arrangements because, um, this kid's not going to make it. He's just not going to make it. Wow. You know? I was already having some liver scarring on my liver. Um, 
things were looking pretty dire. You were doing some drinking. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I was not just drinking alcohol, like alcohol. I was also drinking mouthwash. Sure. Um, I was also drinking like whatever I can get my hands on. Um, yeah, I one time I one time I drank cologne, but it was mostly like like anything that I could just. Yeah, I drank uh, vanilla extract was one my go to. Yeah. Ooh. Because they don't sell alcohol here on Sundays or liquor here on Sundays, so I would go to the store and steal vanilla extract i just wanted to not feel anymore and so my mom finally got fed up and said chris you're gonna die i've accepted that but you're not gonna die in this house i'm changing the locks you can either live on the streets or go to treatment Mm -hmm. and that single single act probably saved my life um went to treatment uh you know short version of that is i went to treatment this time like i realized that i was like everyone else and there was someone whose name was also Chris who just said, hey, man, do you want to be a part of something? And I was like, I mean, yes. I mean, my whole <laughs> life. Yes, but, but yes. You know, and he was like, be a part of what we have going on here. We're just a group of alumni. We have a good time. We go out and, and uh, drink way too much coffee mm-hmm. and hang out and talk. And that's what I did. Um, the other thing that made me want to stay sober this time was this was when I was in treatment, I saw all these people who were like, so I was 23. I saw people who were like 53 and 63 in treatment saying the same things that I was saying, that they were going to go back out and see if they could make it happen again. And they got a girlfriend across, you know, state lines and they got to go like, I was like, <laughs> whoa, <laughs> you don't. Okay. So I was just thinking I was just going to die. Like by, by, I hit, by the time I hit 25. You mean I could live this way for a long time? Oh no. Like yeah. that that really was it for me. Wow. Like seeing other people continue to lie to themselves and continue to like play the game and think they have some moves left. Like <laughs> the 23-year-old <laughs> me was like, nope. Cause yeah. I know my luck. My luck is I will suffer for 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And then I'll die. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't want that. I don't want it. You sound like you have an incredible mother. Oh my gosh, my mom, I, I I wouldn't be here today. I mean, obviously. But I, yeah, would not be the, the man I am today. Certainly would not be sober without my mother. Um, she just was an incredible and is an incredible force in my life. Um, my father wasn't around. My father uh, suffered from schizophrenia. And um, we had a strained relationship most of my life. That, that did get patched up when I got sober. But yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of like how I got to sobriety. Yeah. I think the coolest thing to hear too is that, you know, you mentioned that your friend had told you like, hey, it seems like you're drinking at something. And then the first time you went to treatment, like you got sober at someone, you know? And then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then when you went back to treatment, like you just, you really got sober. And I, I think there's a huge difference when you start to really lean into that and you're not doing it in spite of someone or at someone or to prove a point. It's really like, there's more of a formal decision around this is not the way that I want to feel or live. And I'm trying so hard to feel part of something and I still don't. And my liver's right. wrecked. So like, what am I, what am I really doing? Yeah. What am I missing? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the, again, seeing people continue to be in this situation of, of distress and pain for decades was one factor. But then the other factor was, quite literally alcohol took away the very thing I was drinking it for. Like I was drinking for connection. Right. And here I was alone. No friends were contacting me. I didn't have any romantic interests. Like all the things that I wanted out of alcohol, it stopped giving it to me. Mm -hmm. So why am I going to continue drinking it? Yeah. It separates for you from yourself too, right? You mentioned like creativity and writing and like the brain fog. It's like, I don't even get to be me when I'm drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, that's yeah. really a powerful story. I love, I love when people get sober young. It's so exciting because you've yeah. got so much left. And then, you know, obviously you can do so many things with this. So can you talk to us a little bit about like the, what was the next phase of your journey like? Oh my gosh. So because I got sober relatively and I, there are people get sober at 16, you know, and I, I hats off to them, but I, I got sober relatively young, right? Like I yeah. was 23 years old. 
And I had my whole life ahead of me. And that was the weirdest thing. I had not planned on living beyond 25. Right. Like I was like, I'm going to be out of here by then. Uh, so I had, I didn't, you know, have a plan. And I actually went back to school and took an aptitude test because I was like, I don't know if journalism is going to work for me because uh, I don't know if you know about journalism, but it is a very boozy job. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and like, that's probably not going to work out for someone who's nearly sober. Uh, so I had to find something else. And I took an aptitude test and they were like, okay, you could be a couple things. And one of the things that came up was a counselor. And I was like, okay, I like people. I like the, the part of interviewing, right? And getting the story is the thing that I've always liked about journalism, right? So basically it's journalism, but like, helping people yeah right okay. yeah i like that um, you're, yeah. Ta- you're talking to three yeah. three counselors yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 i mean and obviously it's a lot of documentation right you're, you're writing a whole lot right sure. um you know it's a different kind of documentation but it, you're still writing <laughs> so i was like okay i'm gonna do it i'm gonna be a wounded healer uh went back to school became a licensed counselor did that for eight years and in my time as a counselor i worked at all levels of care um loved the job loved most things about it. I mean, I don't, the documentation, no, just, yeah. just no, yeah. never. Um, but one thing that I realized when I was working in treatment was that we spent a lot of time talking about sobriety and how to like get through triggers and, and things like that. But what we never did was teach people how to have fun. We right. never really spent a lot of time working on that fun, um, aspect of their life. I believe fun is a key performance indicator of overall wellness. And you're not able to have fun if you think about, you know, since I'm talking to counselors, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Uh, At the base, you have those very (laughs) basic things that you need. Mm -hmm. But at the top level, it gets a little bit more like, you know, relationships. And I think at the very, the very top dot of that hierarchy of needs is fun. Mm. Um, And if we are having fun, most of our needs are met. It's hard to have fun when you're looking for your next meal. It's hard to have fun when you don't feel connected to society at large. So by asking people, like, are they having fun and are they connected to other people? I feel like we can learn a lot. So this was like kind of my working theory. And then I started just talking to clients and they were all saying the same thing. Chris, like, I know that I need to stop drinking. I know that it's not working for me, but I have no way to connect to other people and I, or, you know, and what's happening a lot of times is like, I don't fit into the 12 step model, mm-hmm. Yeah, no. but I, I'm just going to 12 step meetings because I need friends yeah. and I, the meeting after the meeting is so important to me. And I really, really need that. Oh, I need to also just qualify. I, I did, I did attend 12 steps, uh, as part of my recovery. Uh, I just want to say that. So I'm not, I'm not bashing 12 steps. I'm just saying like what was reported, what was being reported to me was that people were like, if I don't fit that model, I'm, I'm outcast. I don't have anywhere to go. Right. Right. And I need somewhere to socialize. And so my thinking was like, okay, these people are saying this like hundreds of people a year that I'm, that I'm working with in uh, this, um, I was working for the mental local mental health authority here in Austin. So I was seeing a lot of clients, right. It's like fast food, you know, substance use care was seeing the same thing over and over. They were just saying like, I have nowhere to go. Where, where, where do I go to meet new people? You say that I need to change people, places and things. Like where? Where do I go to do that? Right. Yep. Like, (laughs) like we kept saying that over and over and over again and people intuitively know that that's true, but they don't know how to do that. They don't know how to change those people, places and things. So it all came to a head for me in 2017. I had a client who I was working with and this person was just college educated, upwardly mobile, super smart, and just a, just a light in this world. Um, and our last conversation was kind of this person saying that they were just struggling with not drinking because they wanted, they missed having fun with their friends after work, or they missed going out on girls weekends. Uh, or, you know, retreats or whatever it was like. And that was a conversation I had with that person on Friday. On Monday, they were gone. They had a car accident while they were drinking and driving and they're no longer here. Shit. Wow. And I was just like, 
what 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 broke me yeah. and what what broke what really broke me about that situation is that all my supervisors were like that's part of the deal that's you know that if you're you know you're working this. and i had been a counselor for five or six years at that point so i was used to losing clients but my supervisor's like man that just happens you know people got to want this thing bad enough they got to do the all the that is so toxic, man. So we don't do that with anything else. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, someone someone has a, a heart issue and the cardiologist says, you know what? They just didn't want it enough. Right. Oh, man, God. if they just, next time they just got to get it. Well, you know, like, that's not the way that we should look at people who want to get better. And the the missing piece of their puzzle is socialization. We, right. we, just, we just shouldn't put the onus on people to create that. So that that broke me. Um, I stayed in, in the field for a little bit longer, but I slowly began to work on the idea for Sandsbar. Like that, losing that person and being told like, this is just part of the deal. Like we're just going to lose people. Um, it, was an, it was unacceptable to me. I love me that you refuse to accept that. Yeah, I think we're all yeah. three. I mean, I won't speak for all of us, but we're, I'm definitely really aligned with that. I really can't stand phrases like, Maybe they haven't hit their bottom yet. Like maybe they haven't suffered enough. They've got to really want it. And like you said, when people are willing to get better, we should be willing to move freaking mountains, man. Like let's do whatever we can. So I love, I mean, what a, what a tragic story and certainly really sorry for your loss and, you know, for the, the client's kind of impact and also so inspirational that you were able to take that and say, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to be that supervisor ever that says man it's just part of it man like this is you know you chose this profession yeah it is what it is right like that that kind of thinking and i think some of it is and i just realized this now like some of it is just your your protective sure sure justification right like you're you have to say that that's is what it is because it protects you from feeling it yeah. But I just, I felt it deeply, right? I'm a connection-centered person. And so to not have that connection uh, was just so hard to yeah. deal with. Tell us about Sandsbar. Sandsbar was like this thing that came out of that very sad experience. And I had never bartended before. I never really ordered any fancy drinks when I went out drinking. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing, but I was like, I'm going to make this happen. So with 200 bucks, my wife's a teacher. I'm a you know counselor. We don't have a ton of money between the two of us. So we, we scrounged together 200 bucks and I had my first pop-up in December of 2017. And like six people showed up. And like two like two of them were not related to me. Everyone else was like me. <laughs> but it did not deter me. Like I was like, you know what? Yes. I'm on to something. I'm on to something because the people that did show up and that weren't related to me had a great time. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, we need to have more of these experiences. We, this is, this is awesome. And so I started hosting pop-ups here in Austin in 2018 and it grew from, you know, six to 16 to 60. Uh, and then we started to see, you know, over a hundred at our events. And I was like, okay, this, this, this is gaining kind of the kind of traction that, that deserves a brick and mortar space. So I looked up and found another uh, recovery organization and they were like, we have this space. Would you like to use it? I was like, yes. And I've been there ever since. And it's been such an amazing journey because I've been able to see this non-alcoholic drink movement evolve and people coming coming into Sands Bar, having a good time, listening to com- com- uh, comedy shows, doing karaoke, having a great time, dancing, and they're just blown away that they the thing that they were looking for for some people like me their whole lives they're able to find they're able to have that experience that creates a new neural pathway right that says Mm -hmm. i can go out i can have fun and i can stay sober when i wake up in the morning i feel like a like a person who just went out and had a good time without any hangover i don't feel like i i don't have that guilt and shame that i used to have yeah i feel brand new and you've been introduced to know Molly Ruggieri now, but we had an event here, you know, months back and I always describe it to people who weren't there as kind of a sociological experiment. You know, it's because historically and traditionally, you just don't get that. There's not, as you know, there's nowhere to go where it's a bunch of people that are not under the influence. 
And so what's that like? What does it look like? And the way that I equated it was like an eight-year-old birthday party. Yeah, it was <laughs> popping off. You know, <laughs> just go, just all of a sudden, like, you know, the, the discomfort and the kind of awkwardness that was there for the first 15, 20, 30 minutes was there, like it is everywhere until everybody gets drunk. But the same awkwardness and weirdness went away at the same time it does when people are drinking and everybody gets more comfortable and all of a sudden there's this energy and it's loud and it sounds like a bar and you and I mean I walked out of there amped up and mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. it's so cool it's so cool to see and be a part of I love that you're doing this and I and it's it's got to expand and take off as it is I mean I I hope that it continues to grow and expand I tell people all the time that you can walk into Sands Bar on a Friday night at about 8.30 and close your eyes and you would not know that there was no alcohol being served in that bar. It sounds like a bar. People are mixing drinks. Drinks, are, you know, people are toasting. Yeah. People are laughing. laughing. Music is playing. Like, it, it sounds like any other bar in America. And I think that blows a lot of people away because they, they just think that it's going to be this, this weird, awkward experience. And, and like you described, you know, there is that initial like awkwardness about it. And most people equate that comfort that happens after a while to alcohol. And right. I think we, I right. think we give alcohol way too much credit. Yeah. yeah. That's just, yeah. A, that's just a human brain feeling familiar in, in their, its environment. Like yeah. over time, you know, like you're gonna feel more comfortable. You're gonna talk to more than one person. You're gonna you're gonna feel the same thing. Um, alcohol just accelerates what would already have happened anyway. Yeah, I just love that uh, reality about you know sober experiences that it gives us an opportunity to connect with each other without the presence of alcohol. I yeah. love that. Like the connection can actually happen on a deeper level when you're not drinking, right? You're attuning to people like your mirror neurons are actually firing. Like those things are genuinely happening. And I love that time frame of like, if you can get over the first 15 minutes, like you have to anyway, when you walk into a bar and order a drink, like yeah, you're in, you yeah. can do karaoke sober. You can do all of these things. sober. I get pissed now when I go places and they don't have a non-alcoholic menu. I'm like, fuck this place. <laughs> Never coming back here. Yeah. I'm like, seriously? It's 2022, guys. Uh, like, come on. Uh, I did. Yeah. So I need some coaching from you, Chris. So I am probably more of a gray area drinker. I've spent some time um, away from alcohol, like multiple years at a time. Sometimes it's four or five months at a time. And it's really just depending on does it work for me in that life phase or not? Um, is it increasing anxiety? Is it actually making me have fun? Or just do I feel the need to be drinking? So I'm very intentional about my alcohol use. And there's something that you said, I got pretty deep into your Instagram page and into some comments the other day and saw that you were really like discussing with someone the idea that mocktail is a term that we should be using. And I had the same insecurity that this person who was commenting has, which is like when I say the word mocktail or I see a mocktail menu, I do kind of feel like I'm ordering kids mac and cheese and like I'm obviously the designated driver or pregnant. And mm. I really, like, have a hard time asking. Like, I just want to order a drink off of a menu and not be like, can I have the non-alcoholic version or, like, the mocktail version? Like, it bothers me that I still have to use that term. And you did a really beautiful job of kind of reframing that. So will you coach me on why I should not have a problem with the term mocktail? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to know what I said because <laughs> say a lot of things. Yeah, so I'm like, what, what did I say? What did I say? I'm like – just jumping on my Instagram, like, what did I say? Um, I feel like me, you was, mentioned something to do with, like, the meatless movement at one point. Oh, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, okay, I got you now. You got me. Um, first of all, first of all, mac and cheese with Gruyere can be an adult <laughs> mac and cheese. Yeah. For sure. I, I think that mac and cheese or chicken fingers or anything that we, um, we consume has this idea around it of, like, the way we view it, not yeah. the what it is, right? Like if we think chicken fingers are for kids, are childish, <laughs> yeah. right? Then they then they are. But if if you have like you know frittered chicken with you know pecan with a pecan crust, like yeah. that's still a contender. Like it's just yeah. it just looks you're, you're just calling it something else. So <laughs> I just have a personal thing about that. Like it's in the eye of the beholder, right? And if something is childish, it's because that person's determining that is childish. But, okay, the vegan thing. Okay, so 
I totally have copied everything, all my language, all my messaging, all my marketing. I've completely stolen it from the vegan movement. And I don't nice. even like, I don't even pretend like I've, I've had an original thought around this. Like <laughs> the, the entirety of like my, um, like, like, oh, you've got it all figured. No, I don't have it all figured out. I just literally copy the vegan movement because what the vegan movement did was take something that was very, you know, kind of left field, like not eating meat, something that just seemed counterintuitive and normalized it to the point where it's a very common thing, right? Like we, yeah. like the idea of like not eating meat is like, okay, that's fine. But 30 years ago, we had like this idea of like eating vegetarian or vegan right and that's mm -hmm. pretty much you know the language that was being used and a lot of the language that that we used around those products were like meatless products right and when right. the word meatless was around a lot of vegans did not like that because it was still centering meat uh, right it was still okay. saying like this is the alternative to so in their uh, mind that was like the kitty option right like i'm you know, like it's a second rate product right yeah. and a lot of people who ate meat didn't want to eat something that was meatless. Right. It didn't. Uh -huh. It didn't feel right. It didn't. Yeah. And honestly, it sounds like a, sub like a substitute. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. Then about uh, eight years ago, something incredible happened. Um, Beyond Meat was founded, and the conversation switched from being meatless to being plant based. Mm -hmm. mm. And once 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 you start talking about it being plant based, well, we all eat plants, right? We all eat plants, right? And it changed the understanding of what this stuff was. And so my whole argument is that we are in the meatless era of, of of this of this yeah. movement, where uh, right now mocktails is what people understand. They understand yeah. the word mocktails. I can go anywhere in the world. And say the word mocktails, and most people will understand what I mean. Yeah. If I were to say zero proof cocktail, if I was to say um, a plant based cocktail, or what, I don't know, whatever, the, <laughs> yeah. whatever the phrase will be in the future, um, people just look at me very like puzzled. So we just have to kind of like work to shift things in that direction. And, and I'll, the other thing that I'll say before I let you ask any other questions is that um, I believe that we break down stigma by having people who do drink become part of this movement. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you look at most social movements, the needle does not move until we have people who aren't in that population. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. We talk about civil rights, took a lot of other people to become part of that movement before civil rights became a mainstream thing. Right. You think about gay marriage. It, it takes, it takes a lot. It takes all of us. Yeah. Not just people who identify in that in that group, and yeah. I think the same thing is going to happen with uh, people who don't drink. Is that yeah. we will never see the normalization, the ending of stigma. We talk about breaking stigma so much. Stigma ends when everyone feels like they have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can't do that if you're saying this is recovery, recovery only, yeah. just recovery. Right. Like it's. Like that's that's doing the opposite of what we think is doing. Like we're creating the stigma. Exactly. Yeah. And our we you know, one of our taglines on this podcast is that we are not a sobriety and recovery podcast. Right. Because we talk about everything in the whole spectrum. Mm. And that is the same idea. And everybody's invited. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to replace even just the word like or to expand the word drink again. Like when someone says, Do you want to go get drinks or do you want a drink? Or are you having a drink? They only mean alcoholic. Yeah. And so a lot of times when someone asks me that, I have to be like, well, I'll probably get, and I'll clarify, like I'll probably get like a non-alcoholic or like a, you know, a mocktail or whatever. And just like even that, that like the word drink has become yeah. an alcohol infused term. Like just like, I feel the need to reclaim that and be like, yeah, I'm having a drink, you know, and yeah. like order a Shirley Temple and be like, Palmer. screw you, you know, like, <laughs> because it, because it really should apply to everything, but there is kind of still this differentiation, but I really love I, the way that you phrase it really gives a lot of hope for that continuing to shift. And like, just some patience around recognizing like we're early on in this thing, you know, just because we've been maybe in that space for a while and we really believe in it doesn't mean that that's the same across the board. Oh, I mean, this drinks movement is literally like four years old. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I, it that, literally is. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Cause you were like, uh, uh, 
kind of a pioneer in terms yeah. of Sands Bar. It's like you got in before stuff started to pop off, and then it's like you had this bar, and now there's just been this evolution of of NA products that are that continues to expand. Like, how do you see this movement evolving? Thank you for those kind words. I honestly, because of my origin story and the story I told you of losing a client, I always feel very like dubious about like the high praise and accolades. Like this came from a need. It came from a loss. It came from something that was just like, not a day goes by that I don't think about like how I got here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so, so like, it always feels kind of like, I feel kind of weird about that. You made it happen, man. Like Like you actually actually did it though. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I did. I mean, I just, I thank you for that. Take and so, a compliment. Yeah, I'm try, I'm, I've got my therapy session in 10 minutes. So, all right, good. I'll need to work on that. But um, here's the deal I think that we're just starting to see this thing grow. Um, the NA drink category is still the fastest growing segment of the beverage market, period. Yeah. And what I think we're going to see is, an awareness that it's not just the products that we need to see investment in because right now all the money, especially big alcohol, there's a lot of big alcohol that's coming into the drinks market and starting to like find a way to become a part of this because they see the value in it. Um, But I think that we're going to see a shift away from beverage development and see more like social services, community, like nice community development, because what good is it to like, get these customers who are sober curious if they don't stay in the category, right? If they try mm-hmm. a non-alcoholic drink and they just leave retention is the, is the name of the game. So I think we're going to see some investment come into like spaces like Sands Bar, like mm-hmm. Awaken Denver, like um, some of the bottle shops that are happening, like what Molly's doing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I could see, yeah. you know, some, something like what Molly's doing replicated across, you know, North Carolina and beyond. I think that yeah. there's a lot of things you can do, um, in creating and galvanizing this community and this movement. Um, and then I'm just working on a lot of things personally. I'm working on, I'm building an app. I'm, you know, working on a couple of other products and um, really seeking to just help others get started. I own uh, Sands Bar Academy, which is a 10 week course that's all virtual and it helps people to create their own non-alcoholic business or concept. So uh, Man, most people cool. that do the Academy don't have a ton of money and they they just want to get started like I did with $200. And nice. so we we figure that out and I connect everyone with everyone that I've known in this in this category since I I was here before there was one and yeah. it doesn't have to be a sans bar. Like that's my thing too is like I believe that diversity is the best uh best way to like make something grow because just like anything that's living the more diverse a thing is the better chance it has to be viable no matter what happens. Wow. Love that. Awesome, Chris. That's so exciting. Call these our power questions. Number one, why do you care? Mm. I care because this is the most important thing. My whole life, I've wanted to belong. And my whole life, I've wanted to feel a part of something. And community is the thing that gives me life. It's the thing I wake up and I'm excited about. I've been sober for 15 years and caring about other people is the reason why a drink seems like an impossible thing. Like I don't even want to go back to drinking because I would immediately lose all the connections that I've made, all the wonderful memories that I've created with my friends. Like I would lose all of that. So I care because it's what I do. It's what I've always done, and it's what I hope to always do the rest of my life. Mm. Mm. Can you give us three things that you find value in being alcohol-free? Three C's. How about that? (laughs) Um, So the first one, the first C is comedy. Like, I just find a lot, like, humor. Like, there's there's a lot of things in life to laugh about, um, and I find so much value in in being it again because it's, it's like one of those things if you can laugh i mean and not in a self-deprecating way and not laughing at someone but if you can find humor and joy in life then life's pretty good and it's like gratitude the more you look for things the better it grows um thing number two uh 
creativity. I have just been reconnected with my my creativity over the 15 years of my my alcohol abstinence, and uh, it has just changed my life. And then the last C, of course, is community. Um, community Perfect. is so important. And what's more important is that it's not about the communities that um, I help develop. It's the communities that I find myself in. And I, I am, you know, making myself an honorary member of the Champagne Problem Problems community. Yes. Um, yes. I, yeah, man. I am not, I'm not embarrassed or shy about asking, can I be your friend? Uh, because I just <laughs> learned that that is, that's the five-year-old Chris to 39-year-old Chris has always wanted to have friends and have connections. So comedy, creativity, and co- community. Perfect. Dude, thank so you so much for coming on, man. I, I can't, like, I really just, I really appreciate everything you're doing. We all do, and we cannot wait to get together. April 30th. End of this month, man. And, April 30th. And, and party down. Up. <laughs> yep, I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's going to be a big event. So, Chris, thank you so much. We will see you soon. Thank you, Chris. All right, thank you so much. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit DilworthCenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit TheBlanchardInstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.